Welcome back to the 2AM Book Review Club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. This month, we are doing a mini-series on books that I read for the 2023 Storygraph Genre Challenge. Last week, I did an overview of the challenge prompts and I talked a little bit about the 16 books that I read to fulfill all 10 challenge prompts. This week, we are going to take a closer look at two of the most interesting books that I read for this challenge. And we're going to do this in kind of a fun way. We are going to be doing a battle of the biographies. For this challenge, I ended up reading two biographies, Caravaggio, A Life Sacred and Profane by Andrew Graham Dixon, and All That Heaven Allows, a biography of Rock Hudson by Mark Griffin. And today, we are going to be doing a little competition to see which biography is the better biography. And by better, I do mean which biography I enjoyed more. If you listened to last week's episode, you already know who the winner is, but I have lots of thoughts about both of these books and I thought that this would be a fun way to discuss them. Now, at first glance, it might feel a little unfair to compare the life of a golden age Hollywood star to the life of a great Italian painter, but these two books and these two men are actually more similar than you might think. First, both books are about artistic men. Caravaggio was a painter and Rock Hudson was an actor who cared deeply about his craft. Second, both books deal with men who struggle to fit into the societies in which they desperately want to belong. Caravaggio was never truly recognized as the upper-class gentleman, the superior artist that he thought he was, and Rock Hudson was a gay man who was burdened by the image of a Hollywood star who very much was not. Finally, both books center people who remain at least somewhat mysterious, somewhat enigmatic. Caravaggio left behind very little in the way of a historical record. We have no writings or letters. And Rock Hudson was many things to many people, mostly people who had something to gain from how they remembered him, how they portrayed him in their own memoirs, in their own memories. But beyond the similarities in these two men, I've read a lot of biographies. It's actually one of my favorite subgenres of nonfiction. And there are a few standards that I tend to apply when I read a biography to decide how well I think that particular biography was executed. 
My first question when I finish reading a biography is, well, how much I learned about the person. And my second question is whether or not I enjoyed the book. I know the primary purpose of nonfiction is to educate, but if a book isn't enjoyable, then who's learning anything from it? Nobody, except people who have to read it for school. My final question is whether or not I feel like I understand the person, not whether or not I feel like I know the person, because I don't think that's really possible or even desirable. That person is dead and we are not really going to understand them because we even have trouble understanding people who are alive and who we interact with every day. I feel like it's a little... It's a little ambitious to feel like you can truly understand someone who's no longer here. But if the author has done a good job, then the person feels fully realized, like someone who really existed and really would have lived the life that they did. I can understand who that person was, why they were the way they were, and I can also understand the choices that they made. When a biography helps me understand someone, then it feels like I've been able to explore not only the life, but also the mind of a fascinating person, fascinating person. And that is why I read biographies. I, so I'm not really here to read or learn about historical events per se, although of course it's a nice bonus, but I'm primarily here to learn about people and all of the different kinds of people who have existed throughout history. In fiction, you know that I tend to choose character-driven stories, and biographies, in many ways, feel like the ultimate character-driven story. So those are the three questions we will be using to decide which is the better biography. Caravaggio, A Life Sacred and Profane, or All That Heaven Allows, A Biography of Rock Hudson. Ready? All right, let the battle of the biographies begin! Round one, which of these biographies did a better job on a purely factual level? Which biography did I learn the most from? Let's begin with Caravaggio's biography. So the thing about writing a biography of Caravaggio is that because he lived so long ago and because he's pretty much absent from the historical record, the thing about writing the life of such a mysterious person is that a lot of what you write ends up being guesswork. It's not as easy as collecting sources and picking which facts to emphasize. Instead, the author often has to decide what exactly the facts are. Here's an excerpt from the book that shows what I'm trying to say. Anyone attempting a biography of Caravaggio must play the detective as well as the art historian. The facts are rarely straightforward and the patterns of intention that lie behind them often obscure. The artist's life can easily seem merely chaotic. The rise and fall of an incurable hothead, a man so governed by passion that his actions unfold without rhyme or reason. This was, for centuries, the prevailing view of him. But there is a logic to it all, and with hindsight, 
a tragic inevitability. Despite the many black holes and discontinuities in the shadow play of Caravaggio's life, certain structures of belief and habits of behavior run through all that he did and all that he painted. The evidence has to be decoded using guesswork, intuition, speculation, and above all, a sense of historical imagination, a willingness to delve as deeply as possible into the codes and values that lie behind the words and deeds of a far distant past. And a little later in the book, the author gives us a concrete example of how hard it can be to piece together Caravaggio's life. There are three early biographies of Caravaggio. All were composed after his death, and each is unreliable for different reasons. The first was written during the second decade of the 17th century by Giulio Mancini, a physician from Siena who met Caravaggio in Rome, probably in about 1592, and who knew him well between 1595 and 1600. The second was published in 1642 by Giovanni Baglione, a rival painter who had competed and quarreled with Caravaggio during his years in Rome, in particular between 1601 and 1606, on one occasion suing him for libel in response to some scabrous verses, on another going so far as to accuse him of hiring paid assassins to kill him. The third was written, three decades later, by an antiquarian and art theorist named Giovanni Pietro Bellori, who had never known Caravaggio and who based his own account on those of the two earlier authors. As the author goes on to discuss, it's difficult to know which of these three to trust, which of these authors have the knowledge or even the motivation to tell the truth, and he ended up having to do a lot of archival research in order to try to corroborate or disprove these accounts. In contrast, writing the biography of one of the most famous movie stars of Hollywood's golden age has a distinct advantage. Throughout the book, the author draws on not only interviews given by Rock Hudson himself, but also interviews and memoirs by Rock's friends and family, many of whom are just as famous as Rock Hudson himself. But at the same time, as the author acknowledges, the people who are closest to Rock most often had something to gain from how they portrayed Rock to the general public. For example, we can't necessarily trust the memoir of Rock Hudson's former wife, which she mostly wrote to distance herself from the scandalous revelation of his sexuality. Similarly, Rock Hudson's former boyfriend who sued for a chunk of Rock's estate after his death, whatever he says, he's probably going to be mostly motivated by bitterness and self-interest. And even the interviews that Rock himself gave often played into his Hollywood persona as a red-blooded, very straight, all-American guy, which, of course, wasn't who he really was, so everything he said has to be filtered through that awareness. So writing a biography of Rock Hudson is going to be a similar detective game of deciding what's most likely to be closest to the truth. Even the simplest facts of Rock Hudson's life aren't necessarily easy to determine. 
For example, here's an excerpt from early on in the book where the author is talking about Rock's early life. Some recently unearthed evidence suggests that even before he was born, Roy Jr. had caused some significant problems for his parents, though once he became a Hollywood star, all of the details would be carefully concealed. In an authorized 1956 fanzine entitled Star Stories, writer Jane Ardmore promised her readers Rock Hudson's true life told in exciting story form. Ardmore described the Sharer's Elm Street residence as their honeymoon apartment, one that Roy and Kay had moved into a year and a half after their wedding. While this may constitute exciting story form, it bears only a passing resemblance to true life. Roy and Kay's long-buried marriage certificate is dated March 17, 1925, only eight months prior to Roy Jr.'s birth in November. This would suggest that the young couple had to get married shotgun style in order to save face. And that marriage certificate that the author mentions was unearthed by the author himself, as he mentions in the acknowledgments. Whether we're talking about the guy living in the 1590s or the guy living in the 1950s, both of them are historical figures shrouded to some extent in myth and mystery. But what is really cool is to see what the author of the Caravaggio biography does in order to make up for this uncertainty. Let's go back a moment to that first quote I read from the Caravaggio biography, and in particular, this portion of that quote. Despite the many black holes and discontinuities in the shadow play of Caravaggio's life, certain structures of belief and habits of behavior run through all that he did and all that he painted. The evidence has to be decoded using guesswork, intuition, speculation, and above all, a sense of historical imagination, a willingness to delve as deeply as possible into the codes and values that lie behind the words and deeds of a far distant past. When you read this book, you don't just learn about Caravaggio himself, you learn about the world that he lived in. There's a particular focus on the places that he lived, specifically Rome and Milan. And I think that's especially appropriate given that Caravaggio wasn't his real name. It was the name of the town that he came from. And so when you read this book, you don't just learn about a single person. You learn about the many different societies and cultures through which Caravaggio moved. Because Italy in this period wasn't a united country. It wasn't united until Garibaldi came along in the 19th century. And so different countries were running different parts of Italy. And above all, you also had the Catholic Church, which was an incredibly powerful political and cultural force at this place and at this point in time. And so Rome and Milan, for example, weren't just different cities. They were almost different countries. One of the most interesting parts of the book for me was when Caravaggio went to Malta in an ill-fated attempt to become a Knight of Malta, a high-ranking member of the Order of St. John, a religious order that was also highly militaristic. And if you think that that's a bit contradictory, a bit of an unstable situation, here's an excerpt that shows you just how unstable this situation was. 
As supreme authority on Malta, Wignacourt was answerable only to the Pope. He presided over the venerable council of the order, composed of the eight conventual bailiffs, one for each lang and the grand priors. The venerable council framed the order's statutes. Wignacourt was also in charge of the criminal council, which had the often demanding job of ensuring that those statutes were obeyed. As the leader of an all-male fighting unit, especially trained in privateering, pillage, and kidnap, one of his main priorities was simply to preserve order. This was by no means easy, and a blind eye was diplomatically turned to certain habitual misdemeanors. Wignacourt made no attempt to close down Valletta's many brothels. In 1581, when one of his predecessors had attempted to eliminate prostitution on Malta, the result had been a full-scale riot. But other offenses were dealt with swiftly and ruthlessly on a sliding scale of punishment. The list of prohibitions and mandatory penalties is itself a testimony to the difficulty of maintaining order among several hundred proud Knights of Malta. Punishment for the offense of being incorrectly dressed without the eight-pointed cross of the order was the quarantine, which insisted that the miscreant be confined to his auberge for 40 days during which time he was to fast in penitence and submit to regular public floggings by the vice prior in the conventional church. Repetition of the same offense brought a three-month prison sentence. The penalty for rowdy behavior inside the alberges was deprivation of seniority within the hierarchy of the knights. Insults, traded between brother knights in the Grand Master's presence meant the loss of three years' seniority. More serious crimes were punished by defrocking, the permanent deprivation of a knight's habit. This was the penalty ordained for a variety of offenses, including assault on a fellow knight, heresy, apostasy, theft, dueling, and the abandonment of comrades in battle. If a knight killed in anger, he was sentenced to a traditional Maltese death. The procedure was described by George Sandis. If one of them be convicted of a capital crime, he is first publicly disgraced in the Church of St. John, where he received his knighthood, then strangled and thrown into the sea at night time. I'm always fascinated by these types of insular, secretive societies, and I love that the Caravaggio biography takes the time to explain every aspect of this particular society in so much detail. Unfortunately, I just don't think that the Rock Hudson biography takes the same opportunity to delve into the world of Hollywood in the Golden Age. It's a fascinating period of history, and there's definitely a lot to talk about, especially given that most people today don't necessarily have the context to understand it. How many people have actually watched movies from the Golden Age or read books about it? I would guess not many, and I definitely think that this was a missed opportunity to do that kind of in-depth exploration. 
especially since I really think it would help readers to understand just how significant of a figure Rock Hudson is in Hollywood history. The Rock Hudson book does what it set out to do, and that's fine, but the Caravaggio book really raises the bar. It really shows us how even when you're talking about a single person, you can still do a lot more. You can still really flesh out the context surrounding that person in a way that overall enhances and enriches the reading experience. Overall, I'm going to have to give round one to Caravaggio, A Life Sacred and Profane. By any measure, this author had the harder task, and he did such a spectacular job of illuminating not just the life of a great artist, but also the world in which he lived. I learned so much from this Caravaggio biography, and unfortunately, I just don't think that the Rock Hudson biography offers the same kind of in-depth knowledge. So, congratulations to Caravaggio on winning round one in our Battle of the Biographies. Moving right on to round two. Round two is, which of these biographies did I enjoy more? So, I think the fairest way to judge this round is to discuss the biggest strengths of these books. This time, let's begin with the Rock Hudson biography. I think that celebrity biographies are probably most popular with people who like celebrity gossip, who are inherently drawn to petty drama that doesn't really matter. And that definitely describes me. I have an unhealthy interest in drama of any kind, but especially drama that has no effect on me or my life. And so I do think that the fact that so much of this book is taken up by quotes from people around Rock Hudson does give this book a deliciously gossipy atmosphere that certainly speaks to the target audience. Personally, I also really liked that the book talked about the movies that Rock Hudson was in, since I found it really interesting to see the wide range of roles that he played, as well as the general trends in the types of movies that Hollywood made over the years. Now let's talk about the Caravaggio biography. Now, not everyone is going to agree with me, but I found the richness and texture of the level of detail in this biography to be really enjoyable. For example, I mentioned earlier that Caravaggio goes to Malta to try to become a Knight of Malta. Here is the passage that describes his arrival in Malta. On July 12th, in the fierce heat of midsummer, Caravaggio arrived in the harbor of Malta's capital city, Valletta to a man in search of renewal and redemption. It must have been an inspiring sight, an entirely new city built of honey-colored limestone that glowed pink in the sun. Valletta had been constructed at breakneck speed in just 40 years. After the turmoil of the great siege, the knights realized that they had to fortify the narrow headland known as the Zyberus Promontory, which connected the island's two principal harbors. The construction of the new capital by an army of slaves on the steepest incline of the headland had been an immense undertaking, but once complete, it meant that the knight's principal garrison 
was all but impregnable. It was named in honor of John de la Vallette, Grand Master during the siege. The Pope's best military engineer, Francesco Laparelli, was responsible for the plan. The sheer stone fortifications of the citadel rose directly from the craggy outcrop of the island itself, with the sea acting as a moat on both sides. Within its walls, Valletta was laid out on the Renaissance model of the ideal city. The principal architect responsible for the buildings was Girolamo Casar, who was from Malta but had studied in Rome. His palaces and churches were designed to reflect the knight's ideals of Christian sobriety and military discipline with long, severe facades of rusticated stone. The streets were laid out in a grid with nine thoroughfares running across the peninsula and twelve running from top to bottom. Their strict geometry was softened by gardens and fountains, providing shade and water. Getting from the harbor end of Valletta up to the steep hill to the center of town and to the grand cathedral of St. John was hard work, even for the fittest. Centuries later, the club-footed English poet Byron would bid farewell to Malta with the words, Adieu, ye cursed streets of stairs. Approaching Malta for the first time, Caravaggio was surrounded by symbols of the island's fierce rule of law. On the first promontory on the left of the harbor was the forbidding spectacle of a gallows. Within the harbor itself, prominent on the left-hand side, was the Castel Sant'Angelo, where many of the most famous events of the siege had taken place. By the time of Caravaggio's arrival, it had become a prison for disorderly knights. Another hallowed site from the recent Maltese past was the Castel Sant Elmo, where so many members of the order had lost their lives in 1565. A late 16th century German visitor to Malta noted that some of the rocks there were still visibly sprinkled with gore. The stains were pointed out with pride by his Maltese hosts as the glorious blood of Christian martyrs. Malta was a remote and harsh place, rocky and sun-parched, unlike anywhere Caravaggio had ever known. But it was also fertile, having been famous since antiquity for the quality of its cotton. Cicero had had his clothes made on Malta, as well as for the sweetness of its honey and its bounteous quantities of almonds, olives, figs, and dates. The island encompassed two utterly distinct societies, Malta Africana and Malta Europeana. The world of the indigenous islanders had remained unchanged for centuries. Its people were dark-skinned, spoke a language incomprehensible to Europeans, and lived in humble settlements much like the tribal villages of nearby coastal North Africa. Cosmopolitan Valletta was entirely different, a flammable blend of extreme Christian piety, simmering military aggression, and barely contained sexual dissipation. As this excerpt shows, I like that we're not always talking about Caravaggio. 
I like that we're not always talking about a single city. We're always talking about different places, different people, and the nuances inherent in the way that those people and places functioned and interacted. I also really enjoy the writing style. For example, this sentence really showcases what I like about the writing. It is with this gnomic, fragmented record, this mangled account, of mysterious skullduggery and impenetrable misdeeds that Caravaggio's life in Milan comes to a close. Finally, I do want to point out that this author isn't afraid to pull any punches when it comes to commenting on Caravaggio's art, and I find that to be really refreshing and also just straight up funny at times. I feel like often when you're writing a biography about someone, you just feel the need to be really, really nice about that person's work, and that isn't necessarily true in this book. For example, here is part of the author's commentary on Caravaggio's early painting, The Musicians. The Musicians was clearly one of Caravaggio's better-known early pictures, because both Bellori and Baglione mention it specifically. Baglione says that, For Cardinal Del Monte, he painted a concert of youths from nature very well. Bellori describes it in the same terms, the concert of youths portrayed from life in half-figures. The young man with the cornetto at the back resembles Caravaggio himself, while the lutenist may be his friend, Mario Minetti. But the composition as a whole radiates an air of contrivance. It resembles a frieze or bas-relief rendered in paint. The four boys are so similar in aspect and demeanor that they might be clones of each other. The suspicion lingers that they were all based on the same figure, depicted from different angles and then collaged together to form a single composition. Perhaps when Baglione and Bellori talked of Caravaggio portraying from life and painting from nature, they were not talking about the artist's process, the use of models and so on, but trying to capture the distinctive mood of his picture. For all its artifice, it does have a certain clumsy lifelikeness. And here is the author talking about one of Caravaggio's first devotional pictures, the penitent Magdalene. The hands of the figure are boneless, and the anatomy of her chest and neck unconvincing. In a lot of ways, the Caravaggio biography is definitely a heavy book and generally pretty serious, but it's also a fun book to read in a way that the Rock Hudson biography never really manages to be. So, round two is going to the Caravaggio biography as well. Congratulations on winning round two of our Battle of the Biographies! And finally, round three. Which of these biographies helped me feel like I truly understood this person and their life? Let's begin with the Caravaggio biography. For a man who is so shrouded in mystery and unanswerable questions, I do think that this book does a really great job of helping us understand his mentality, his ethics, the way he thought about and interacted with the world. 
We can understand where his art came from, how he made the choices that he did, and why he was trapped within a cycle of violence and poverty. There are some things we'll never truly understand about his life, especially his early life, but I think that's true of most historical figures, particularly those that are so hard to find in the historical record. Now let's talk about the Rock Hudson biography, and I've been doing a lot of thinking about this biography and how it made me feel. Because I came away from this biography feeling a bit disappointed and I've been wondering why. Why was this biography ultimately so unsatisfying? And after thinking it over, here's my conclusion. The central problem with this biography of Rock Hudson is that even after reading over 400 pages about his life, you still don't really get a good grip on who he actually was. Sure, we get that most people thought he was a really nice guy, and it's really sad he was closeted all his life, then died of AIDS, and sure, he had terrible choice in picking partners, but that's all pretty superficial. Being nice was the persona he used in his social life, just as being straight was his Hollywood persona. Being bad at picking partners is a little more interesting since we can tie it back to the domestic abuse he suffered as a child, but we're still talking about Rock Hudson in relation to other people. Rock in relation to his co-stars, to his friends, to his partners. But who was he beyond all of that when he was just being himself? I think the main reason it almost feels like he's in the background of his own story is because the author's control over his own narrative feels tenuous at best. I mean, it's great to have all these quotes and interviews, but it almost feels like the author is using them as a crutch. In Caravaggio, the author is very clearly involved in the telling of the story. He's opinionated and knowledgeable, and most of all, he's in charge. He knows where he's going, and we're happy to follow his lead. But with the Rock Hudson biography, you almost have to question, what's the point? It's great to have all these sources that you're spouting at us, and I'm glad you did your research, but what's the story? Why should we care about Rock Hudson and his life? Why did you care enough to write 400 pages about it? And at this point, I want to bring back an idea I discussed a few months back. The idea of historical fiction versus fictionalized history. In that episode, I talked about historical fiction books that almost feel like a dramatized Wikipedia article and how unsatisfying those books ultimately feel. Similarly, I think that there are biographies that feel like they were written with no larger purpose in mind than to tell us the facts of someone's life. But the issue is that facts alone can't tell a story. Facts alone aren't a satisfying narrative, and that remains true whether you're talking about historical fiction or historical nonfiction. So, to no one's surprise, Caravaggio wins round three and therefore is the overall winner of the Battle of the Biographies. 
Overall, I do want to emphasize these are both well-researched and well-executed, but the difference is that I would recommend Caravaggio, A Life Sacred and Profane, to everyone. I want everyone to read this book. It is so good. But I can only really recommend All That Heaven Allows, a biography of Rock Hudson, to people who are already interested in Rock Hudson and who also have a good understanding of why he's important and how he fits into Hollywood's history. But overall, I am really glad that I read both of these biographies and it's one of the reasons why I'm so glad that I participated in the genre challenge. Again, I need to emphasize I'm not being sponsored by the story graph for this. I just had a really good time with the challenge and I just want to talk about books. Alright, that's going to be everything for this episode. This has been the 2AM Book Review Club. Thanks so much for joining me and I'll be back next week at 2AM. Until then, I hope you have a great week and happy book travels! <laughs>